1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like anchovies, oil and earthquakes. I feel the, the ground seems to be trembling
2: underneath us in the United Kingdom at the moment. I think we should also think about doing, very seriously, about doing idiocy, arrogance, <laughs> robots, freefall... Cliff Edge, we are we are recording this on the 30th of September, 2022. And the pound is tumbling. The mortgage market is in disarray. The IMF have basically said we are the people running this country. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer are lunatics. Um, I think we should do something around that. Maybe robots. Did you see... Do you see Liz Truss going around those local radio stations, Sam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <gasps> yes. Yes. My word. Yes. Or the history of silences.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, dearie me. Stumbling um, idiocy. Let's do idiocy and silences. Stumbling. Yeah, all and, of those and, are good and, and we will robots bring them we're <laughs> If we're all still here next week, we'll do a few of those. It's terrifying. However, for the moment,
2: we will, as always, be following the links in our minds, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of sharks is in fact all about power and status in ancient China. It's all about Pompeii, education, irrational fear and
1: the Spanish Americas in the 16th century. It's all about Mm. that. Who knew? (laughs) Sharks was a good one. We should do more animals. Um, Let me say of my fellow presenter, you may be wondering who he is. Well, he likes nothing more than a gathering of souls, a chance to reminisce, a meeting in which the power of the past ignites the conversation. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell.
2: Hello, James. (laughs) Hello, Sam. Well, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say he is the long-lost brother of the history world is the famous historical adventurer dr sam
1: willis hello everyone um today we are going to be doing reunions which is quite exciting we are um it's a it's a topic that is uh kind of incredibly complicated in its links with history the more you think about it i wasn't quite sure what i was going to do and i'm not entirely sure I've, i've really got to the bottom of its potential it's a fascinating topic
2: it really is. The reason we're doing it is in honour of the fact that I recently had a an old college reunion. Uh, I went back to my old college in Oxford, Hartford College, uh, where I was. I think I, I matriculated in 1991. Of all things, matriculation is is the ceremony that you have that. Basically inducts you into the university uh, rather than graduation. That sort of the onus is put on matriculation rather than graduation. I stayed there for three years, and it's the first time I've gone back in almost thirty years to something called a Gordy, which is an Oxford tradition um and i met up with my fantastic friend uh chris parkins there uh who is a very avid listener to histories of the unexpected very very avid listener in fact he uh he had listened to 10 i think i said this last week he listened to 10 he episodes did, he did, yeah. while he was painting the kitchen um which i just found extraordinary uh so i'm going to talk a little bit about that it was what prompted me but i think it, you're right it uh, doing the research about this it it really does have so much potential and is and also is a way of connecting the past to the present yeah. and one of the things yeah. that I was coming coming across a lot was there were lots of school and college reunions people who knew each other you know decades ago but lots of military reunions you know we've just had a load of sort of um, you know anniversaries of, of, of D-Day and Dunkirk all those sorts of things and you know, and there you've got soldiers who are being, you know, reunited with each other. Also, I'm thinking about I've got a new project that is burgeoning around the history of separation, and actually, so the the other side of separation is the is reunion. And there's some really interesting, <laughs> really interesting stuff around diaspora, um, families being separated then coming back together. That I think is is really, really, really interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, and that kind of struck me—the the idea that um, you 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 need to have a moving away before you can have a reunion, and that means that the history of travel is kind of uh, intricately linked to the question of reunions. And if you think about different societies that uh, in different locations and how um, some of them would not necessarily ever be in a situation where they would have to have a reunion because they might live in small kinship groups, uh, might be isolated. I was thinking about, um, you know, rural communities. You've talked about um, communities in mountains before, isolated communities, communities on islands. Um, So people who, who may not have had the opportunity to go away at all and you you live a life in which you are surrounded by your friends and your family, and it never changes. The only thing that changes are people who are born and people who die. Hmm. And there are certainly um, uh, uh, cultures around the world where that was the case. So I had a little think about that, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And and also there's the kind of the value of a reunion, what it does. It you know it reinforces ties of kinship, and and sort of why people choose to have reunions. I suppose we've had a, a bit of a reunion James. I feel like I've been reunited with our book Histories of the Unexpected. Ooh, yes. Um, I think terrific. Because, yes. Yeah, uh, with the um the paperbacks just come out and it was um it was delayed because of Covid. Yes. And uh so uh, I have got a lovely box of these uh, very very handsome books. Um, and I was really enjoying um, being reunited with the uh, the titles of what we did all that time ago in the, the history of rubbish or snow or cats or the smile, uh, chimneys, boxes, clocks, holes, uh, dreams, hair, the paper clip. It's all good stuff. Um, and that was a kind of it really is a, a a very powerful way of uniting you with something that's happened in your past. Um, which is essentially what this whole reunion story is all about. Oh, I was quite
2: struck by the the arrival of those books. And thank you to the wonderful team at Atlantic for doing such a splendid job on this. The cover is lovely. It's bright yellow. So really captivating. Um, for me, though, um, my daughters are now of an age where they are actually interested in what I write. And I found them both the other day. We, we're, we're really draconian in our family. And they get up at 6.30 in the morning and have... Have to read for half an hour before they before they're allowed to do anything else. This is a sort of tradition that it's sort of uh, that a habit that has been developed over the last couple of years. I caught them both the other morning reading a copy of our book, uh, and actually then <laughs> and actually then afterwards talking to me about it. So they'd actually read it, and my, you know <laughs> I, it was it was it was extraordinary. They loved the they in particularly loved the start you know the 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 chapter on the hand i think that was your bit so so they didn't didn't actually didn't actually appreciate anything that their father had written but you, i think that was your idea sort of knocking on the knocking on people's brain um to sort of you know force the history in
1: so do you want to start or shall i start or don't mind. Well, I'll just start with a, a, a little bit, um, because uh, there's a chance I'm heading off to China again soon Ooh. to do some more filming for National Geographic, which is good. I haven't been Ooh. been for three or four years now, and um, that was Ooh. after going, you know, every year for, for about seven years. And um, Where are you going? Just thinking about... Uh, oh, well, I'm not entirely sure yet, but, but China- probably around Chengdu and Ooh. then Beijing. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> um, but it made me think of uh, Fujian, which is a, a lovely province I went to, and they have these remarkable houses called the Tulo, which are huge, enclosed, fortified buildings made out of round earth. Um, they're they usually circular, you can get rectangular ones. Um, and they're fascinating because they provide communal housing for up to 800 people. Um, and I was lucky enough to go and explore some of these remarkable structures. Um, and they're very cleverly made. Actually, the the, the rammed earth of the of the walls is mixed with stone, bamboo, wood, a variety of other materials, and um, it makes it uh, earthquake proof as well as windproof and well ventilated. It's a really a really clever piece of architecture. Now, the point about it is, is that not just it's a home for eight hundred people, but um, it's a it was occupied usually by one large family clan of several generations. Um, A few of them have more than one, but but the majority of them were just one family. And you essentially are living under one roof with 800 people that you are related to. Um, And it's an extraordinary um, way of thinking about about living. Um, And these two low have been built from, some of them date back to the 12th century. And the most recent ones built in the 20th century. So I've got 800 years uh, of this history as well. Um, and uh, it's fascinating the way that it's all structured. So not only are you living under one roof with your 800 family members, um, but the, the, all of the, the 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 buildings are created equal. They're built of the same material, the same decoration, the same style of windows and doors. There's no um, kind of vertical structure of society. Very very uh, clear communal living. Um, and uh, it may be realised that if you're, this is one of the finest examples that I've come across, anyway, of um, uh, of it, the society being created in which reunions are less likely than others because everyone's living together. There's little travel, uh, and um, and you you live your life as it as it is, as it as it appears. Mm.
2: Excellent. I could imagine living under a one single roof with 800 members of my family actually I could imagine it and it would be terrifying <laughs> utterly terrifying <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about um about Gordie's um since I went to one uh, a couple of weekends ago and this is the tradition that it's an old college tradition it's an Oxford tradition old members are invited back to their college roughly every decade with their contemporaries and it's usually over it spans several years so I think as I said I was there with people who were there 91, 1991 to 93 so there were people that my year and then two years above and what it involves is you have dinner in hall, you spend the night there, you stay in college rooms, it's highly subsidised, it's, it's brilliant uh, and it's a way of keeping in touch with people that you knew as undergraduates. So it is a real, a real reunion. It's interesting to connect with your old college, your old friends, to see what people were doing. I mean there Krishna Guru Murthy was in a couple of years above me and was back there uh, in college. Uh, so it was a really amazing time. The, the, one of the things that struck me was was people's hair. Um, it had either receded or greyed and um and in a way that mine hasn't uh, and my 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 good friend Chris uh, asked me if I actually dyed my hair. So I, I thought, obviously not. No, 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 no. I've just just you know very good genes. Um, so I was thinking about the sort of the history of this, which long-standing tradition. Um, and I was, as you do, I was going through uh, my my bookshelf, and I bought many many years ago a brilliant anthology edited by Ursula. Aylmer who is the wife of the legendary 17th century historian or history or historian of the 17th century Gerald Aylmer uh, and the the book was called Oxford Food and so I was leafing through it last night and I thought there's bound to be something here on Gordy's and, and of course there is there's also a brilliant section on Christmas at Oxford uh, which is fodder for one of our Christmas episodes that will be forthcoming and what I found um, in the book was a wonderful um, menu that survived of a centenary gaudy. So instead of the sort of usual gaudy dinner, this is a centenary, um, for which was uh, they provided a buffet supper for about five hundred guests at Saint Anne's College on the thirtieth of June, nineteen seventy-nine, and this was to celebrate the college's centenary. And with that many guests, you can't put them all in the in the hall. Um, So they had a great marquee on the main lawn. Uh, There were various head chefs from other colleges that came along to uh, assist their own head chef. Uh, At St Anne's College, a man called Martin Searle, who in 1979 also happened to be the president of the City Guild of Chefs. And what they concocted was this amazing uh, sort of buffet with intricate... um, sort of fabrications in ice and sugar and, and, you know, and records of it is that it is it is um it was utterly spectacular um i've realized that most of the um most of the list of dishes that they had are in french so i apologize uh, for my appalling french pronunciation of this 1979 buffet melon frappe au porto there's salmon uh, scottish salmon uh, there's uh, york ham i'm i'm translating here there was lamb there was terrine of duck all sorts of salads there were lots of different uh, <laughs> types of potato waldorf egyptian nissoirs um uh, there were sauces mayonnaise vinaigrette mint sauce uh cream sauce there were uh champagne with strawberries souffle milanese uh cafe a, a wine list uh that had muscadet um reds and whites and you know very sort of exquisite uh stuff they had fillets of beef and pate and and tongue of beef and um and parisian uh duck uh so quite a sort of an opulent um quite an opulent um sort of evening and the evening is it is really about it's about consumption, conviviality, and socialisation. Nowadays, they've become incredibly. They they still have that sort of charm about them. The sort of candlelit dining room, and you've got the sort of imagine. You know, imagine being at Hogwarts in, uh, you know, in uh, at high table at Hogwarts. It's a little bit like that as you sort of look at the 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 wood panelled um, walls around you hung with with portraits of famous luminaries Uh, so it's a a little bit like that but it has become much more corporate now so it's really being used now to keep in touch with alumni and the the fundraising element of it was you know incredibly light touch Uh, I just said I'm an impoverished academic so to go and talk to the merchant banker over there or the the QC or Casey uh, who I'm sure could 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 help much more than I could Um, but there we are Sam there's a little bit about um about Gordy's uh, and if you're interested in Gordy's read Dorothy L Sayers Gordy Night which is a Lord Peter Whimsey novel which is set in a in uh, Shrewsbury College Oxford which is based on Sayers own Somerville College which is an all-woman's college and it's it's based at a Gordy and the people are invited to attend uh, the gaudy celebrations, and then a murder is committed there. So Lord Peter Whimsey comes in and sort of investigates and sorts it all out, and it's got obscene graffiti and vandalism and poison pen messages and all sorts of things like that. Um, so there we are, Sam. Uh, Gordies as reunions. And hello again to Chris. It's,
1: Hope you're listening. Uh, it's interesting. It makes the, the point about... Um... What the purpose of this is, I mean obviously you enjoyed going there and, and reminiscing about your past, but obviously it can be a an important networking event as much as anything else if you go to an Oxford college reunion, I suspect uh, and that made me think about why um reunions happen and i 've come up with a really really interesting example um, This is in America after the Civil War right uh, in the southern states so it's all to do with Confederate veterans organising themselves um, and the reasons behind why they do it. Um, and they originally started to organise themselves at the state level, but eventually created national organisations. all begins in 1883 in Virginia, um, where veterans get together in Richmond. Uh, and the idea of this spreads. It goes to Tennessee, then it goes to Georgia, and then on to Louisiana. So they all set up these regional Organisations And they join together, they combine. They combine, they call themselves the United Confederate Veterans. Um, and they set up this organisation. And by 1890, they have a large national institution of their own, which includes most of the living veterans from those who fought for the Confederacy, so the southern states during the US Civil War. Now, it's uh, important to remember here that they are uh, fighting in the Civil War in defence of uh, slavery. They want to continue um, with the system of slavery, which had been, um, been extant there for a very long time indeed. By 1903, this is a really large organisation. They reckon that of the 100,000 100, surviving veterans, 65,000 of them um, have participated one way or another in the organisation. So, what's the purpose of this organisation? This is where it gets really interesting. So, what they're doing is they're trying to they try to set up what what they describe as a regionally satisfying, uh, interesting word that interpretation of the civil war. They're also uh, caring for, honouring, um, and honouring the uh, the ageing veterans, and also um, um, memorialising those who died for their cause. Um, and I just want to go back to this idea about it being a satisfying interpretation of the Civil War. More specifically, what they aim to do is to, is to create a correct history of the Civil War that will do the Southern cause justice. Um, and they sought to do this by making sure that textbooks used in Southern schools do not teach the youth of this section erroneous ideas as to the war and the cause leading up to it um so it all to do with a uh, with a uh, manipulation certainly uh, a, a kind way of saying it is I- interpretation of history and what they're trying to do even though they were defeated in a um military sense in the war um they use this organization of veterans to create a regional cultural and an intellectual identity which is rooted very much in the Old South. And what they try and do is is, is create something which they hope will survive um, far longer than the Confederate nation itself. So what they're trying to do, James, here is control the past, essentially. And one of the ways they do that is through the annual reunion. Um, and uh, so plenty of marching um, and... The way the way it was organised was a chance for them to explain their beliefs and to stand up for things. And in 1903, um, it really kind of spilled out when they were trying to decide who was going to lead the bands for the event. There was a big parade, and who was going to be the bands? Um, now, it's quite interesting here. The musicians' union, okay, they're the, they're the ones who have been asked to do it. And they have both white and black musicians. But what they can't do is meet the veterans' demands for 20 different bands, all made out of entirely white musicians. Um, One reporter described it here. He said that a Negro band would be like a red flag before an army of old Confederate veterans who fought for four long years over the black man. And he goes on to admit that uh, many of the veterans do not care for any coloured bands to lead them in the big parade. Um, But there's a different interpretation of this as well, which I thought was interesting. So many of the veterans, what they do is they actually express their desire to have black musicians lead the parade on the basis, though, that it reflected a long tradition of white audiences listening to black performers. Um, In the end, they um, they refused to to employ black musicians at all for their parade. Um, and that was just one aspect of the uh, overt racism uh, which colored this um, this particular this p- particular reunion but it happened again and again with every annual reunion they were using it as an opportunity to um, carry on um, with the beliefs and the ideas that they had been forced to give up by losing the American Civil war.
0: That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
2: Ooh, that fits really nicely with what I was going to talk about very briefly. Um, It's sort of taking that, um, you know, taking that in a sort of different direction. And one of the things that I was going to talk about is the legacy of black family reunions. And, you know, post... um, Slavery, you know, the emancipation of um, of slaves, and the ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which was 1865, you know this this decreed that neither slavery nor inv- involuntary servitude would would continue. Um, and the problem is, after that, you've got um, you've got so many family members who've been dispersed. You know, they've they've been separated. They've been sold away. They've, you know, been off in other parts of the country. They've moved around a lot. Um, there is then the problem about how do you how do you reunite as a as a family? How do you get how do you get back together? And this is compounded by the problem that formal marriage wasn't encouraged. Children would be taken. Would be sent away, sold off, separated. Um, there are problems about tracking people down afterwards because of naming patterns. You know, you wouldn't have had a. You know, naming would be would be really different. You you suddenly in a position where you're free and and how do you? What name do you do you have? And people would often take on you know, part of the name of the the person you know, who had en- enslaved them. Um, and so you've got this sort of really interesting and complicated picture. Um, and and at the root of it is this sort of deep-seated... This is Alex Haley's roots all over, this deep-seated, um, you know, desire to be reunited. And one of the most touching things that I came across when I was doing some research around this is newspaper advertisements and people putting advertisements in newspapers and the small pages seeking to find people who were part of their family and from whom they'd been separated from there's one here uh, from an advert in a tennessee newspaper in 1865 and it's from utica new york august the 5th 1865 and samuel dove wishes to know of the whereabouts of his mother, Areno, his sisters, Maria, Nazia and Peggy, and his brother, Edmund, who were owned by George Dove of Rockingham County, Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. Sold in Richmond, after which Samuel and Edmund were taken to Nashville, Tennessee, by Joe Mick. Areno was left at the Eagle Tavern, Richmond. Respectfully yours... Samuel Dove so there's this sort of sense in which there's this sort of this huge desire to be reunited with family with loved ones and a whole sort of intricate history you know behind this and moving on from from there I was also thinking about this in different in different circumstances um, of family reunions and I was thinking also about the reunions during the after the second world war with you know men folk generally uh going off to fight and then when the war was over people people coming coming back and a lot of this is captured in oral history and you know people reminiscing about the occasions when they were you know reunited with with loved ones and a great Uh, source for this is the people's war website we've used this in the past this is the bbc project from several years ago it's now not being updated but it has been archived and it was an attempt to go around and interview a particular generation of people who had experienced the war and who to capture those memories uh for posterity and there's one really interesting um oral history account by a woman called Pam Winter uh, that was added with her with her permission, which talks about the reunion of people after the war was over. And I just want to read you some extracts from this. When we knew the war was over, the community spirit still prevailed... All the women took out their most precious provisions and contributed to street parties. Everybody rejoiced and everything was red, white and blue. I remember having a necklace with red, white and blue beads. It wasn't like the Jubilee. People just found red, white and blue. It was a luxury because there was a paper shortage, so everything was homemade. The weather was glorious, there was no shortage of food, although rationing was still on. There was so much food because everyone contributed. People ate all day, there were home brews too, ginger beers, sarsaparillas. The men started to come home and unfortunately some men and women didn't come. The men were demobbed and given a suit, and trilby, shoes, a raincoat and about £50 each. This was enough for a deposit on a house. We were very fortunate. All my relatives returned, even though they had been all over the world. Homelessness was a serious problem in the big cities and many men returned home to find families and homes destroyed. There was no counselling service then for all the children, with no for others. We had German prisoners billeted too. Girls that became friendly with them were ostracised. People of German origin in the Second World War changed their names. There was a great relief in the community that people no longer had to be secretive of their origins. There was a spirit of openness after the war. There was evidence of mass immigration. There was nowhere you could go without finding someone of different races. And so it goes on. When people came back from the war, everything changed and you could use transport. But I think what what's really interesting in that is this, what it doesn't say is that it doesn't talk about the sort of the emotional side of reunion, the kind of joy that might, you know, might expect of being re- reunited with loved ones but what it does get is that kind of that mass movement of people returning and being reunited or coming back and finding expecting to be reunited and actually finding that there was nobody there that everything had been destroyed that people had been killed without knowing about this and then what is the sort of psychological damage of that how are people you know how do you unpick the emotional side of those kinds of those kinds of experiences i think we could go on and on with with reunion in all sorts of different ways but maybe you've got something to finish us up with sam
1: yeah well just the idea of um Of you kind of touched on it there, but knowing who to reunite with, you've got to kind of, especially with families. You know who your friends are, but it's obviously linked with the history of genealogy, yes, and being able to map your family trees. Uh, And I looked into this a little bit, but in America, particularly, it seems to have you know started from about 1850 onwards. By 1870, um, there was a a really sort of lots and lots of people were very much interested in family history. Um, One of the interesting parts about this was um, this is an appeal for someone uh, he's he's set up a journal in in the states in 1875 um, and he is a a genealogist a guy called gt ryden and um, he kind of rants a bit about it saying how odd it was that schools considered knowing national history was a prerequisite for citizenship which seems fair enough um but had no regard at all for the value of family history and how there were people at the time who know about national history but have no knowledge at all of their close family relations couldn't even name their great-grandparents um uh, which I thought was quite interesting, the idea of what, what was actually more important and who values different types of history. So you know, national history or family history, if you had to choose, which one do you think would be most important to you? And I wasn't immediately certain what my answer would be. I kind of thought it would be national history, but then I realised that actually knowing personally what my family history or, or, or certainly knowing where I came from, um, was a kind of an important bedrock, which I'd want to tick off first before um, before learning anything else. I'm not sure what you think about that.
2: Oh, what I think is actually a, a, a sort of bit of both. And what I'm most interested in is how. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, in my my forebears, ancestors, you know, those kind of stories. But I'm in, I'm also interested in how they fit into a sort of broader narrative of history. So yeah i'm really interested in oral histories of you know memorable events so i'm interested in talking to my father now about the the second world war and his experience of the second world war he's born in 1942 so he doesn't really he doesn't have that many memories but he you know there are fleeting memories that he has or his experience of the 1960s i was really struck by talking to my grandfather, who was a great sort of raconteur, really uh, interesting man very sort of lively character and yeah, talking to him about his reminiscences of the Second World War uh, was fascinating. I also to return to what I was talking about uh, about Gordy's um, I was also just really struck as a young boy hearing about his experiences of Gordie's. He was at Oxford, at Corpus Christi College, just before the Second World War broke out. Um, he was he was about 18, 19. He was in the officer training corps. He actually left Oxford to go and fight and then never came back to sort of finish his degree. He was given a war degree because, you know, basically he'd moved on, got married, had my father um, and was... You know, settling down to family life. But one of the things that he always did was go back to his old college every ten years, and I would be sort of, I would hear his reminiscences of the various people that he he met up with, and there were a couple of really strong friends that he still kept very sort of closely in touch with. And actually, when I was at Oxford myself as an undergraduate, I met up with them, um, and so there was that sort of generational sort of thing which was really interesting so I d not I hadn't planned to talk about that at all but but yes that sort of interweaving of different kinds of history I think is you know is really important and it's something that you find um uh, that you find in family histories from the 16th and 17th century um where people are narrating Uh, When they're writing sort of diaries or histories of the family, so they're recording events as they go along, you've got the minutiae of day-to-day life, then often juxtaposed with, oh, by the way, the king was executed today, or something like that. Um,
1: It's all about perspective, Sam Willis. Interesting stuff. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed listening to our history of reunions. I have, and uh, I think we could... um... Uh, do do some more on that um, do please follow me on social media I'm at Dr Sam Willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast
2: and if you'd like to follow me on social media you can follow me on Twitter at James Dable you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod we are also on Instagram and Facebook so come and befriend us there check out our website historiesoftheunexpected.com for our back catalogue but also importantly with Christmas coming up for signed copies of our books Um, which we can whiz out to you as soon as the postage strike is over Um, also if you want to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past you can become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected by heading over to patreon.com meanwhile um, get reunited with history everyone, (laughs) it's very important
1: good stuff Uh, thanks for listening guys, cheerio take care guys, bye